Welcome to Do Theology, where we keep doctrine in its place. Today we share for you an interview that we conducted with Eric Johnson from Mormonism Research Ministry. And I have to say, as kind of a little bit of an outsider is when it comes to engaging with Mormons. Of course, Jeremy, he you know deals with all these Mormons all the time. Uh, but for me, uh, I've always had an interest in Mormonism, and I've always had maybe just kind of sparse interactions with Mormons here and there. We do have a Mormon temple up the road from us and an LDS church in our community, but it's not super, it's not a very big presence here. It was still super interesting for me and just very, I don't know, if you're not very familiar with Mormonism, I think this interview is going to be eye-opening for you to see some of the key differences between Mormonism and Christianity and why they really are radically different religions and why that's very important for us as we have conversations with Mormon individuals. So give it a listen. I hope it's encouraging for you, and I hope it challenges you to think about how we can better minister and reach out to and evangelize LDS individuals. And it is a little bit like drinking from the fire hose, isn't it? It is, yes, very much so. <laughs> yeah, so we, we do commend uh, his works to you as well, you know, and mrm.org and all that information, show notes, and it's going to be mentioned in the episode as well. Get you on the other side of the music. Don't ask me what I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about his word. I just realized something. He wasn't sleeping on a pillow. He was sleeping on purpose. Something to say I think is important but not essential would be like the inerrancy of scripture. Um, oh, wow. And okay. I hold to the inerrancy of scripture. Okay. The title of my sermon tonight is Why Church Nurseries Are Unscriptural and Wrong. And so that's why I have a baby on my hip right here. There is a level of anointing that I believe is going to invade your homes, invade your sight, invade your senses. Um, that's going to, I literally feel that chains are going to break off of you. Do you think I'm wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Yay! So am I a bad guy for saying you're wrong? Yeah. I am? Yeah. <laughs> that's not fair. Hey, by the way, you are a slave. If you're not a slave of Christ... You're a slave of sin. You aren't free. Choose your master. Give us some men who know the truth. Eric Johnson works with Mormonism Research Ministry and has written and co-authored several books, including Answering Mormons' Questions, Mormonism 101, Sharing the Good News with Mormons, and his latest book is titled Introducing Christianity to Mormons. He currently lives in Sandy, Utah with his wife and three daughters. Eric Johnson, we welcome you to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Ken. Eric, my friend, you are a fellow Utahn. We're both out here laboring away in Mormon land. Why don't you go ahead and share with our audience how you ended up in Utah and how you became a part of a ministry that specifically seeks to reach Latter-day Saints with the gospel? Yeah, well, real quick, I uh, I taught at a Christian school for a number of years um, in Southern California, Bible department head of the school. I had uh, come together with Bill McKeever, the founder of Mormonism Research Ministry in 1989. He founded the ministry in 1979, and so I volunteered with the ministry uh, for most of my teaching career, and uh, and Bill moved to Utah in 2004, said there was so much work to do, and kept, every year he'd come back to San Diego, where I lived, and said, uh, you got to move here, uh, and uh, 
I, you know, I had a family and my kids are in Christian school. I, I was teaching at the community college as well. I, I had it pretty good. It took me six years before 2010, I finally did move here. And so my wife, my uh, two, two of my three kids, uh, one stayed behind and, and, uh, and I moved to Utah. And so I work full time with Mormonism Research Ministry. Uh, an evangelical Christian uh, ministry, like I say, has been around since 1979. And we have a twofold objective. One is we want to certainly share our faith with Latter-day Saints. What a better place to do it than in Utah, as well as to inform Christians as to what Mormonism really teaches and to provide ways that they can effectively share their faith. And so among other things, we have a website, mrm.org, uh, that has hundreds of articles and videos and other things that are available for people. And we get about 2,000 hits a day on that. And then we also uh, do some speaking in Christian churches uh, and and do a variety of other things. But writing books uh, since I moved here has been um, important for me. I, I participated in five different books. And so the last one that I have written, as you mentioned, Introducing Christianity to Mormons, uh, came about during COVID when my daughter came to me and said, I have a friend who's asking me what it is that we believe. Is there a good book I could give to her? Because she's willing to read. And I went through my library. I could not, there's many good books on what Christianity is. I love The Case for Christ, for instance, by Lee Strobel, but nothing that would really make it so that a Latter-day Saint could understand in a way using his or her language. Uh, the same terms that we use in, in between Mormons and Christians are the same, but there's different meanings. And so that's what how that project started. Harvest House agreed to publish the book, and it came out in September of 2022. Uh, and I, I think it's been helpful for a lot of people. Now, of all the book titles we rattled off in the bio there. They all have the word Mormon in it. <laughs> so uh, leading up to this last book, of course, President Russell Nelson at some point along the way there said, we need to stop using the word Mormon, as he said to his fellow Latter-day Saints. So was there any hesitation that you had on your part in putting the word Mormon in the title of this latest book? Look, Jeremy, I think they took away the greatest selling point. Uh, the, the the one word that everybody knew was Mormon. They had the <laughs> choir named after it, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. They had the I Am a Mormon campaign back about 15 years ago. It was very popular. Uh, I, I, it's interesting that over the years, Mormons have used that with no problem. In fact, in 1990, responding to Russell M. Nelson as an apostle who spoke in the April conference in October of 1990, he he uh, went against what Nelson had said, and he says, I have no problem using the word Mormon because it's a way that people know us. He says it means more good. Okay, well, then in 2018, the now president of the church, Russell M. Nelson, says, no, Jesus is offended whenever we use that. So it's kind of a interesting way of, it's like Coca-Cola. I don't know if you remember this uh, back in the, I think it was the 1980s, uh, they got rid of their Coke and they had a new formula, and it was a it was terrible. They ended up having to bring back the classic Coke classic. And they had a, the, the new uh, version was called class uh, uh, was called new Coke, actually. So I think they kind of made that same mistake because I wonder what will happen. Russell M. Nelson is 98 years old. He's going to die eventually. I wonder what will happen after if they're all sold out. But no, we didn't hesitate. In fact, I didn't hesitate using the word Christianity in the title of the book because uh, Latter-day Saints are going to look at that, introducing Christianity, we're Christians too. Okay, well, I, I, maybe I got your attention a little bit because I think there are differences, and I think I show that in this book. But 
I'm not sure what the Latter-day Saint would want me to, to title a book that's written for a Christian audience, introducing biblical or evangelical Christianity to members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint. <laughs> no publisher is going to use that, allow me to use that in their title. And so this is a way in four words I can communicate what I want to say without having to use 47 keystrokes of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yeah. Well, I have a follow-up question with that. You know, I'm sometimes I get online and, you know, there's different, you know, Facebook groups or different, you know, different pages people get on. And there's always that argumentation about, well, is is Mormonism a version of Christianity? Is it a Christian denomination? And as you just expressed, you are recognizing there's a distinction between these two things. Could you just explain why you don't see Mormonism as another Christian denomination and then tell us what it means to introduce a Mormon to Christianity. Yeah, and we actually talk about that in another book that I wrote called Answering Mormon's Questions. I'm not trying to plug this book too, but in chapter one, we we dealt right with it, uh, that question, why don't you accept Mormons as Christians? And we explain what I'll, I'll tell to you right now. Uh, Mormonism, in a simple way, denies or distorts every fundamental teaching of the historic Christian church, bottom line. I mean, according to the church, uh, there was a great apostasy where all authority was lost and, uh, and it had to be restored. In fact, the church calls itself the restored church. So that's a pretty big claim. And I have an article on our website that is something to the effect, uh, if the Mormons want to be known as Christians, they have to get rid of the great apostasy. I mean, if they want to mm -hmm. be known as Christ followers, and they want to do kumbaya with us. Well, first first step, you got to get rid of that apostasy. But the church believes in, as I mentioned, doctrines that uh, deny or distort our fundamental teachings. Who is God? Mormonism teaches that God has a body of flesh and bone, that uh, he once was a human on another world, and that people can become gods. Jesus is a created uh, being. Uh, he's not God in the flesh. You can't pray to Jesus in Mormonism. You pray in his name, but you can't pray directly to him. Salvation, there's, oh, again, with the language, we, we use the same terms. We say, oh, we believe we're saved by grace. And a Latter-day Saint will say, sure, we are too. But what are they actually meaning? And so in the book I talk about, you have to ask the question, what do you mean when you say a salvation by grace through faith. Uh, there is two types of salvation in Mormonism. There's uh, general salvation. All people are going to get uh, to get to one of the three kingdoms of glory, they're called, the celestial, terrestrial, and telestial kingdoms based on their previous, uh, in the previous life called premortality that they chose Jesus as a savior rather than Lucifer. Uh, and, and so there's that general salvation. Everybody's going to get one of three kingdoms, but re true salvation to Mormonism is called exaltation or eternal life. That's where you are. We're going to be with your family forever. And that's a that's a difference. Uh, the idea of authority. They they uh, we have the Bible as our authority. They have four different scriptural books. Plus, they have living apostles and prophet that will uh, tell us how we're supposed to believe. I mean, I can go on and on. But whenever you say a major fundamental teaching of Christianity and you tell that to a Mormon, I believe this, and they agree with you, then you haven't done a very good job of distinguishing between what Mormonism teaches versus what Christianity teaches. And one other thing I would say, you never tell a Latter-day Saint what he or she believes. You might know everything about Mormonism, but you never say you believe this or you believe that, because that's quite audacious for you to say what they believe. I have found when I ask them, well, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about salvation by grace? I find sometimes they will actually disagree with their leaders, which is great for me because then I can say, well, did you know that your leaders have taught blank? And they'll say, no, they haven't. Well, now I can show them what they have really said. 
Well, one of the most interesting features of this book, Introducing Christianity to Mormons, which I have with my, you know, I've been flipping through preparing for this interview here. I've got my little sticky notes. But you have a, a glossary in the back that yeah. compares the definition from Latter-day Saints with the definition from biblical Christianity. Mm -hmm. And that is, of course, one of the biggest challenges that we have always when engaging with Mormons is that they use the same words, but they have drastically different definitions. And there have been a few attempts throughout uh, Christian history to make a glossary, and I think your glossary is very good as it compares the two. And that's essential when engaging in conversation with Latter-day Saints. And in the book, you point out how it's important that we share with Latter-day Saints as you were just saying, that their church actually fired the first shots by by claiming that there's been a great apostasy, that our, whatever church we're a part of today, it is the grandchild down a long line of just churches that have gone off kilter, and we are we are not true churches, that they are the restored true church. And in the book, on page 13, you quote Bruce McConkie, which... He's always fun to quote. He's a very quotable apostle from history. Uh, and he said, modern Christians, as part of their various creeds and doctrines, have inherited many myths, legends, and traditions from their ancestors, all of which all of which views they falsely assume are part of true religion. Indeed, it would be difficult to assemble a greater number of myths into one philosophical system than are now found in the philosophies of modern Christendom. And of course, he is just echoing Joseph Smith with that. But could you summarize the traditional LDS view of historic Christianity? Well, it goes back to LDS scripture. We have to understand when we use the word scripture that it's not just referring to the Bible as Christians, evangelical Christians would think. It also refers to the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and Pearl of Great Price. Those four scriptures are called the standard works. And so in the Pearl of Great Price, there's what's called history, Joseph Smith history. And chapter one, verses 18 through 20, I encourage anybody to go look those up. You can see that online. You can just type in Joseph Smith history and you'll get to their LDS scripture. And it basically has God saying that all of the churches were wrong. All their creeds or their belief systems were an abomination in his sight. And the professors, the pastors, the people who were leading people in the 19th century were that they were teaching uh, doctrines of men and and so very clearly it wasn't Joseph Smith who fired the first shot according to Joseph Smith it was God himself when mm. he was asked which church he should join and he said and God said none of them for they are all wrong if they are all wrong then you're going to have to do a lot of backpedaling to get rid of the uh, the idea of the great apostasy. Now, you're not going to hear about the great apostasy so much anymore at General Conference. In April and October, the church gets together, and, and they'll, they'll kind of make reference to it, but they won't go as clearly as what you just read from Bruce R. McConkie. Another person who had a lot of doctrine would be Joseph Fielding Smith. He said a lot of horrible things about Christianity. You're not going to get leaders to say that today because it's more of a politically correct age. But uh, as my friend Bill, uh, who founded... Mormonism Research Ministry says, I miss Bruce R. McConkie. I miss Joseph Fielding Smith. Yeah. I miss the honesty. Hey, yes. let's just call spades a spade. And we we are the spade if you're going to be the club. And mm. we're, we're not the same. And uh, it's a whole different religion. So for Mormonism to be called Christianity, I think is a misnomer. 
Now, in, in your first chapter of your book there, it has to do with the integrity of the Bible. You wrote that the Mormon Church's eighth article of faith, quote, sheds doubt on the integrity of the monks and other copiers of the biblical text over the centuries. This is a question of the transmission, not the translation of the biblical text, end quote. Could you explain the importance of the Bible itself in evangelistic conversations with Mormons and how to combat their doubt about the integrity of the transmission process? I think it's really important that every Christian has a basic idea of how we got our Bible, to be able to point to different manuscripts, to explain that there are over 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, 24,000 in other languages, to be able to show that we have very early copies and, uh, and there's no evidence to be able to show that the Bibles we have today in the New Testament realm are, are, are wrong. And so uh, when, when uh, Mormonism teaches that it's uh, the translation process, it's uh, the Bible is true as far as it's translated correctly, I think they're using the wrong term because translation is from one language to another. It's possible to have a poor translation. If you've ever read the New World Translation by the Jehovah's Witnesses, you'll see right away that's a horrible translation. It, it's, it's with the presuppositions to be able to, to make some of the uh, translation, I think, errors. Uh, they, they call it the correct translation. Uh, so it's possible to have a bad translation, but the transmission of the text is more what would be honestly what Joseph Smith was talking about, how corrupt professors and scribes, Catholic monks, who would have changed things. And my first two, I spent two chapters out of 10 on that issue because until you can clearly show that the Bible is something that is reliable, that we can depend on, you're not going to get very far quoting Bible verses, for instance. And I also quote in there from 1963, there was a, um, a BYU professor who at a conference basically said that the Bible is 99% accurate. Uh, that's incredible. I mean, the Old Testament as well. I mentioned the New Testament, but I visit Israel every year. I just got back from a trip a few couple of weeks ago, and uh, we we spend time in Qumran, where the Essenes lived, where the the Dead Sea Scrolls were compiled, and we climb into Cave One, where Isaiah, the whole book of Isaiah, was found. I've been in Cave One probably 13 or 14 times. That's a very important book that was found, the Great Scroll of Isaiah, because what we found dated 125 BC is it was the same, except for a, a, a accent mark basically, uh, from that 125 to the Masoretic text from the 10th century AD, a thousand year gap and nothing had changed. And the prophecies about Jesus were in there. The nature of God, Isaiah 43, mm. 44 and 45, God says that there are no other gods, that, that he's the only one he knows about. Those are all in there. It's accurately uh, preserved over that thousand years from the earliest text before we had. So when I take a look at all of that, I want to share that with Latter-day Saints who have been taught not to trust the Bible. And you're, you're starting to get into this, this idea of, you know, the, there's the transmission process, but then we have these great finds. You, you mentioned the, 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 the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Caves mm -hmm. of Qumran. How does archaeology as a whole factor into the defense of the Bible, especially as compared and contrast to, to the historicity of the Book of Mormon? Well, I mean, when it comes to biblical archaeology, we got to be careful how we use that term because most biblical archaeologists in Israel are secular humanists, and a lot of people don't realize that. There are very few Christians in the field of 
biblical archaeology. That's shocking for people. Well, it's biblical archaeology. They use the Bible to help them find things, and generally they're they're agreeing with with what is true. But many times they make horrible uh, interpretations. Uh, the the best biblical archaeologist that I know, his name is Joel Kramer. And Joel, if you go to YouTube and you type in Expedition Bible, it's take it's taken off like a. Um, uh, like a firestorm, uh, he, he opened up his YouTube channel back in April last year, and he's got um, 180,000 subscribers already. Some of his videos have over a million views. And what is he doing? He's just using the Bible, and he's going to these different sites and explaining to you uh, things that uh, a lot of secular uh, archaeologists like Catherine Coleman who did atrocious work in Jericho, for instance, to say that Jericho was not a literal uh, place that the Bible talks about where there was fire around 1400 BC, that uh, grain was destroyed, that brick walls fell. All the evidence is there. You can watch Joel's video, Jericho on Earth. It's a 40 minute video, and I encourage anybody to watch that to see how accurate that is. So yes, we have lots of evidence. We have over 80 different uh, biblical people that we have identified. We have this, we have the, the, the places are identified. We know where Caesarea is in Jerusalem and Bethlehem. We even know the events that took place. Lachish, there's a ramp there that was built by the Assyrians back in 700 BC. You can go visit that ramp today as I just did a couple of weeks ago. And then you can go hike through Hezekiah's tunnel which uh, is a 1,780-foot uh, tunnel that was dug by Hezekiah from both ends to bring water from outside the city inside the city. Uh, you can go hike through that today. You can't do that with the Book of Mormon. Uh, the Book of Mormon, they can't even agree on where the events took place. There are some like uh, um, uh, uh, Glenn Beck, for instance, believes in the Heartland model. It happened all here in the North American continent. But most People from BYU, the scholars there, are saying Central America, and they use Aztec and Mayan ruins to support the case. Well, those were the Lamanites that are talked about in the book. It's uh, There's no comparison between what's available in the Holy Land, in Turkey, and in Greece, and Italy, all the different places that we can visit, versus nothing. There's nothing that the LDS Church has. It's For anybody who looks into that, that has to be damning evidence. Yeah, one of the things I always like to bring up in that conversation with the Latter-day Saint is, you got a map I can look at? Because, yeah. you know, look at the back of my Bible. I got all these maps. And right. in the Book of Mormon, there are no maps in the right. back. That, that, As far as you know, has the church ever released any kind of map that would determine where this was? Not the church, but there was a, a, a BYU professor. His name was John Sorensen, and he wrote a book. I think it was called Mormon's Map or something like that. So what did he have to do in the Isthmus? Uh, going down to Central America, he had to turn it. He had to turn it 90 degrees to be able to make it the land north and the you know. So, mm. I mean, uh, I, so he had to play with the map to make that happen. But no, the church has stayed out of the fray, Jeremy, and I'll tell you why. How are they going to answer that question where the Book of Mormon lands really are without offending a Glenn Beck and others mm. who hold firmly to the the Heartland model that it all happened in in Missouri and, and New York, that those events, great wars, no archeological evidence, you're gonna really offend either one group or the other. So they just kind of stay out of the fray and mm. just let you make up your own mind. Well, we're following along just with the outline of your book, basically. And as you move from talking about the Bible, you go into talking about the nature of God. You spend a couple of chapters discussing the existence and nature of God. 
could you give an overview of the LDS view of where God came from and what he's like? Well, there is a couplet that was put together by Lorenzo Snow, the fifth president of the church. And when he came up with this in the 1840s, he told Joseph Smith, and Joseph Smith said that is doctrine. And it said this, as man is, God once was, as God is, man may become. And the idea, according to Mormonism, it's an infinite regression of God's that heavenly father who has a body, a flesh and bone, according to Doctrine and Covenants, section 130, verse 22, that he once lived in another realm. One leader once called it uh, the star or the, the planet closest to the star Kolob. And that's talked about in the Pearly Great Price. So, so we don't know where that is. And a Latter-day Saint won't go too deep into this because he'll say, I don't know much about this. But, and, and it's true, it's not really discussed very much, but somehow God was once a human on another realm and uh, he was obedient. He was a good Mormon, so to speak. He believed in his heavenly father. And so the idea that uh, because of his belief, because of his faithfulness, that he became the God of this world and possibly other worlds as well. And so then he was able to bring his wife and actually wives because polygamy was in the heavens and will be in the future heavens. But so God has this previous life, and then his father had a previous life that he lived on a planet, and it's called the infinite regression. You go back and back and back, and there's no beginning, not in the sense that Christianity teaches that God has always been God. Psalm 90, verse 2, along with in the Book of Mormon, Moroni 8.18, which says that God is unchangeable. He's always been God. There never was a time that he was a human where he could have been a sinner. A lot of Latter-day Saints I've talked to have said it's possible. God was a sinner because I'm a sinner, so that makes sense that he might have been. That is blasphemous to us as evangelical Christians, That and it doesn't make any philosophical sense. There's a an argument called the Kalam cosmological argument. And it basically says you have to have a uh, beginning because you can't have eternal matter going back. That actually was put together by the Muslim community in the 13th century philosophers in the Muslim uh, realm. And uh, But it's actually really true because you can't have infinite matter and arrive at today, you know, going back into an infinite past. A time had a start in the beginning is how Genesis 1-1 put it. Uh, so, so that would be a much different way than to say that God has always been God, that um, uh, the Kalam cosmological argument says um, that, it's, um, that everything that, be that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. And an atheist could say, well, who created God? No, I didn't say everything that exists has a cause. I say everything that began to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. According to that same argument, um, um, everything that um, God had created is, is all part of the matter, but he didn't create himself. Uh, everything that begins to exist has a cause. God did not begin to exist, therefore God did not have a cause. And the atheist says, well, that takes too much faith. I think it takes a lot less faith to say that than to say that matter has always existed or to say that there was nothing before there was a Big Bang and here we are today. Either those two take much greater faith, I think, than to say that God has always existed and uh, and he uh, is the one who put everything into motion. That Lorenzo Snow couplet, it was either you or Bill, I can't remember, that I picked this up from whenever I was trying to memorize how that couplet goes, that... Uh, Lorenzo Snow put man first. Always. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, as 
as man is, God once was, and as God is, man may become. That man comes first. That's how I remember that in the, in that I, worldview. I used to teach. Uh, I taught world religions as part of my high school curriculum, and we did field trips, and we went to uh, the Mormon Battalion Center in San Diego. We go there every year. They knew who I was, but they wanted a chance with their missionaries to talk to my high school students, and so uh, the missionaries were kind of brash and bragado, and uh, they, I had different ones every year. And so uh, the one tried to say the Lorenzo Snow couplet, and he said, as God is, um, yeah, uh, and he stumbled. And without a beat, I had about 50 or 60 students with me, and they recited the Lorenzo Snow couplet because that was the first day of class. I taught them that little couplet because I said, if you want to, you can grasp this. Now you're going to have a better understanding of what traditional Mormonism teaches. The guy was, the, the missionary was, he's 19 years old. He's looking at him like, how did you guys know that? Well, our teacher told us and taught us that that's what you believe. Is that what you believe? Well, yeah, that's what we believe. So this is something that is even in current manuals, uh, that Lorenzo Snow couplet is very important. And in the church history book, they acknowledge that that is what Mormonism teaches. Yeah, another good argument to combat the infinite regress of gods. Uh, I heard this recently from our mutual friend, Matt Slick, yeah. when he was talking to a, a caller. He said, you know, if, if there are more... If they're becoming more and more gods, that means there are more gods today than there were yesterday or a hundred years ago because more and more people are becoming gods. Well, that means there were fewer a hundred years ago and even fewer a hundred year before hundred years before that, and fewer and fewer and fewer. And you have to come down back to one or zero or something. It has to come back down mm-hmm. to a point. And uh if 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 you have this infinity concept, there has to be some immutability. But the fact that there's mutability and that there are gods increasing means that it had some sort of a starting point. And so it's illogical on that basis, too. And, and I would say you're exactly right. And that's the first god I would want to worship. If Mormonism is yeah, true, right. take uh-huh. me back to the very first one. That's the one who started it all in motion. That's the one who deserves my praise and glory. Now, can you give an overview also of the Mormon understanding of the relationship between father and son? Not not necessarily uh, going to the incarnation yet, because our next question is about the incarnation, but um, just generally speaking, the relationship between father and son, even in the pre-mortal state. Well, I mean, uh, you're talking about son being Jesus? And yes. The, the, yep. Well, I mean, Jesus is the firstborn, uh, and, and that, and they'll actually use the Bible does talk about Jesus being the firstborn, not in the sense of you know, and the Bible is not saying that Jesus was first created, uh, but firstborn is a title. Psalm eighty nine talks about David, who was last in line, who uh, was considered to be firstborn, and so Hebrews makes use of that. But they do believe that the Father. All, he's just one step ahead of us even, or the son. And so he created the son as the firstborn. Lucifer followed. There was this great council in heaven where both Lucifer and Jesus pr- produced their cases, why they ought to be the savior of the world. Lucifer's plan of forcing everybody to accept Heavenly Father's plan was rejected as being wrong. Jesus had the rightful spot. That's where we had to choose between the two. And those of us in the spirit world, as our spirit brothers and sisters chose Lucifer, they were cast out not to be given a body. And so the idea that you are just one step ahead of your kids and so on and so forth, if this infinite regression continues on into an infinite future, then uh, you will always be as the father, as a Mormon father, if Mormonism is true, you will always be the father and you'll always be one step ahead of your children. But then there's like an escalator going up. 
and you get on the escalator and you're always going to progress, but your children get on after. They're never going to be as great as you, but they um, they will continue to progress and they'll be ahead of their children and so on and so on. Now, is it airtight that Mormonism has historically taught that Jesus was created by celestial intercourse, that Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother had some sort of sexual relation that produced Jesus? Because a lot of Mormons don't like to talk about that, but it does seem like that is the logical solution there. That is uh, a problem for, especially when they're trying to convert Catholics in Latin America, because the virgin birth is a pretty important thing in Catholicism, as it is in evangelical Christianity. But you can go to their own uh, leaders to have explained that. Um, in the uh, 1972, they had a journal that was produced f uh, for the benefit of parents who were teaching their children what's called family home evening. And they still have that today, usually on Monday nights. And so it was a, a manual to help to help uh, teach your children. And in that, they talked about this very concept and, uh, and they had a little uh, um, illustration. And so they had daddy plus mommy equals you in the same way that heavenly father plus, plus heavenly mother, or excuse me, no, I'm sorry, Mary, he heavenly father plus Mary equals Jesus. So how else are you supposed to take mommy plus daddy equals you, heavenly father plus Mary? Uh, Joseph F. Smith, Joseph Fielding Smith wrote extensively on this. And in fact, that was cited in this Family Home Evening Journal. You can go on our website, crashcoursemormonism.com, takes you to our website. And it has a whole list of articles that are introductory, less than 2,000 words. So it's meant to be a very introductory, what is it that Mormonism teaches? We have a, we have a, a chapter on the virgin birth. I'd encourage somebody who doubts me, go look it up yourself. And if you go to Bill's book called In Their Own Words, it's it's a uh, encyclopedia of, ref of, of material that Bill had collected over the years. It's like 500 pages. We use it all the time in our podcast. Uh, go there and you can, you can go to the virgin birth uh, teachings and uh, over and over again, that's what they've taught. Now, just because a Latter-day Saint says he doesn't believe it, well, that okay, you're free to believe whatever you want. And that's why I say, do not tell a Latter-day Saint what he or she believes. Well, ask what they do believe about the virgin birth. And a lot of Latter-day Saints don't understand that it's a non-sexual union in evangelical Christianity where heavenly, where, where excuse me, Holy Ghost came upon Mary in a non-sexual way to produce Jesus. So Heavenly Father wasn't even involved as a person. It was hmm. the Holy Ghost, according to Matthew chapter one. Uh, and, and you can show that to them and say, where does it say Heavenly Father had anything to do with the procreation of, of Jesus? Now, Eric, your camera went out. Oh. So along I, the oh. way, in the middle of a sentence, it just... Oh, my. Whoop, here here I come back. I'm back again. There you are. <laughs> the miracle of technology. Is that... Now, yeah, yeah that's good. Now, now before the uh, virgin birth, though, <laughs> Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, they created the spiritual version of Jesus before he incarnated is that right yes they would have he would have been the firstborn so the original heavenly mother because there are literally millions possibly billions I don't know nobody knows how many heavenly mothers polygamy is in heaven that's not disputed at all by most latter-day saints uh that somehow heavenly father came up you know in a physical way because that's how we were created as spirit children heavenly father came upon one of the heavenly mothers to produce us. So we, according to Mormonism, have the same father. We have heavenly father, he's called. Elohim is another term that's used. 
that that would be this we're, we're there but we may have a different mother a different heavenly mother but that's why latter-day saints when uh they'll call you brother they'll say hey brother you know or sister and uh, they call each other that as well but that's meant for you not that you're one of them you're not not that you're a latter-day saint but that you come from the same uh, uh foundation you you come from uh, the spirit world that's the first estate and here we are on the second estate called mortality. What are you going to do with all the information we have? That's why you need to read the Book of Mormon, pray about it to see if it's true, get baptized into the LDS church, and so on and so forth. There's a whole list of rules and regulations that are required if you hope to someday get to the celestial kingdom so you too can become a god. This whole concept of these literal physical unions to create these offspring both in the heavenly realm and then here on earth as well it's it's kind of mind-boggling to think about and to try to think about all the implications of that uh the concept of god the father having a physical relationship with mary on earth to produce jesus as the son on earth I would imagine that uh, most people listening to this uh, would have kind of a visceral reaction to that. I mean, that is uh, obviously there's a whole concept of the virgin birth that is so crucial to biblical Christianity. But even even you remove the you know the prophetic significance of the virgin birth uh, for uh, for that union to take place. I mean, there's like moral implications of that in the midst of that. Why is it that the LDS leaders would would feel the need to teach this and to affirm this as something that would have happened? Oh, that's a great question, and I can't go back into time and, and try to understand uh, that idea. That was pretty much a Brigham Young. Uh, a lot of doctrine comes from Brigham Young, not Joseph Smith, <laughs> uh, I mean, when it comes down to. But if you go back and look at those early leaders teaching this, and even in the beginning of the 20th century, I'd mentioned Joseph F. Smith. He was the uh, sixth president of the church. He was uh, the president in the, uh, the teens, the tens and the teens. And then later, one of his ancestors, Joseph Fielding Smith, the 10th president, they very clearly taught this, how they started it, why they started it. Well, they're just trying to, you know, a lot of what is Mormonism is uh, is is confusing because they're reading the Bible sometimes literally when it wasn't meant to be taken literally. The son of God, for instance. Well, if he's a son, then he must have come here by physical means. <laughs> and, uh, and so they developed this theology very early on. Today's leaders would have a horrible time trying to backpedal on, well, I mentioned the apostasy, but even the nature of God or where Jesus came from. Although you're going to hear a lot more in their speeches from at General Conference, you're going to hear them sounding very much like Christians uh, as far as their belief about Jesus or their belief about salvation by grace. And they'll, they'll use terms, but when you look at it really deeply, uh, they're not, they're wanting you to misunderstand uh, mm. I think sometimes because they're trying to stay right. They're going through a horrible time right now, losing members left and right. And the last thing they want to do is offend anybody. So they're trying to everybody from the LGBTQ community. They're trying to keep them. So from leaving, you know, that are part of their church. And then they're also trying to, you know, people who are in love with Jesus, who call themselves Latter-day Saints, they, they're going to try to keep them too. So it's almost like, uh, in my mind, that they just uh, are trying to keep their organization together, and they'll say anything they can to, without stepping on anybody's toes, to make that happen. Well, shifting gears just just a little bit, but 
but maybe not so much, even with what you said about, you know, they're, they're trying to, they use a lot of the same language and terminology. You have an entire chapter on the resurrection of mm -hmm. Christ. And many Latter-day Saints will say that even if we have nothing else in common, well, we believe the same thing about the resurrection of Christ. Is that true? They, they certainly hold, and I talk about that in the chapter, why am I writing on the resurrection? Because I'm trying to explain Christianity. And so, uh, but the Easter uh, holiday is not a big deal. Oftentimes it lands during general conference and they make a passing reference or they might have a, one of the talks mention it, but it's not, it's not something that is a big deal, I would say, in Mormonism. And so I want the Latter-day Saint who might read my book and the Christian as well to understand how crucial that historical event is. If that event did not take place, then, and that's our, uh, that's our underbelly. Our soft underbelly is the resurrection. And that's why a lot of atheists have gone after it. I, I think there are some really good scholars out there who have defended the resurrection really well. Um, I, three or four scholars who have spent their whole career uh, as Christians uh, dealing with that issue. But if you can get rid of the resurrection, then this whole religion is a fraud. And we're the most pitied of all people, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, Mormonism has two other historical events that I don't talk about much in this book, but they have the Book of Mormon as being a historical book and the events that took place there, as well as um, uh, the first vision. Uh, those two, if you have problems with that, their own leaders have said, then we're, our religion's not true. Whoa, wow, that's, that's pretty big because I think there's poor evidence that there was ever a first vision. We never hear about it until the, the middle of the 1830s. Uh, nothing was said about the first vision. It was, it's so important today to a Latter-day Saint, but it wasn't important back in the 18, um, uh, uh, you know, the 1820s. He supposedly in 1820s met God the Father and Jesus and, and was told that uh, he was you know, not to join any of the churches. And then in 1823, he meets Moroni, the angel, and uh, actually 1824, and, and he ends up, um, no, it was 1823, my, my fault on that. So, so uh, these are important things. We hear about the Book of Mormon. Is it a true book? I just gave you reasons why I don't believe it is. I don't believe it's a historical book. I believe it was made up. Uh, we're, so, so those are problems. Those are the underbelly of Mormonism. And I think those are very uh, uh, Mormon susceptible to getting crushed as far as a historical weight. But with the resurrection, I think there's good reasons. So I wanted to go through some of the reasons why I believe that to be true, as well as look at some of the theories, such as the swoon theory that Jesus uh, didn't die, but he was um, resuscitated, so to speak, and, and uh, appeared to the disciples. I think those don't hold water when it comes to the history. Perhaps it's no coincidence that the soft underbelly of Mormonism, the first vision, the establishment of the church, that that is recognized right around Resurrection Day every year, Easter time. What is it? April 6th is yes. their date, their big yeah, date, right. when they have their general conference, and the emphasis is on the establishment of the church rather than the cornerstone of our religion, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so... Uh, one of those gets more attention than the other, it seems, uh, especially during general conference. I agree. Uh, now, you have a chapter on the Trinity also, and that chapter highlights that that doctrine is a real hot-button issue in our conversations between Christians and Mormons. And you share in that chapter a conversation that you had with LDS missionaries where it turned out that they weren't even sure how to define the Trinity. 
And that obviously happens a lot, not just with Latter-day Saints, but with all kinds of non-Christian religious groups when we're talking about the Trinity. And it's often hard for us to help them understand what the Bible says. So what do you see as our solution in that endeavor, trying to help them understand what the Trinity actually is? Well, a lot of Latter-day Saints will say they don't believe the Trinity because they can't understand it. And when they say that to me, and because I'll ask them, can you define the Trinity for me? And they usually say something to the effect, well, it's three gods and one God. Well, I say, I reject that too. I mean, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and, and I say, that's not the definition of the Trinity. Would you like to know? You know, and if they say no, I don't tell them. I, I'm not mm. going to give them information that's just going to be over their heads and forget it. But if they say, well, sure, tell me. And I, and I'm not going to use those illustrations that really fail when you come down to brass tacks. I mean, everything from the egg to the water. So, I, I, so you have to understand, God is transcendent. He's above our thoughts. Um, Latter-day Saints want to be able to take God and put him in their palm and say, here is God, God of body, of flesh and bones. He's just like me, et cetera. And so, I, so then I'll go back to what I had talked about earlier. I said, can you, I'll ask them the question. Do, can you tell me what God was like before he became God? That's a loaded question. And they'll oftentimes say, no, I can't. Well, I mean, doesn't he have a body of flesh and bones? Wasn't he human like me? Generally, Jeremy, what I'll get is, well, I think so, but I'm not quite sure. I said, why aren't you quite sure? Well, that's not a whole lot of information given. Hmm. Oh, I get it. So it's a mystery to you how God came to become God or that how his God came to be God and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's a mystery. Okay. So if you're allowed to have a mystery, I can't. I can't pull out for you all the stops and show you an illustration that's going to work. However, I believe that the Bible teaches that the Father is God, the Son, Jesus is God, and the Holy Ghost is God, and they are all part of one God, three persons and, and the one essence of who God is. And, and, and so I, I try to equate that. So they have a mystery, so do we. Eternity, I can't explain eternity. How how has it been that uh, you know matter or that uh, time is always not been an issue with God, that he always has been from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. How is that possible? I don't get that, but I have to let God be God, and I can't fully grasp him uh, in this life. I think there will be a lot more understanding when we see him in heaven. Yes, uh, there are some helpful articulations through church history, of course. I think in the book you even quote Council of uh, Chalcedon, where the Trinity was articulated uh, not the do the doctrine wasn't invented there, of course, but the doctrine was articulated based on the Word of God. But the challenge, of course, with going back to some sort of council or creed is that Latter-day Saints really don't like that because they were told that all of our creeds and confessions and uh, all that are an abomination. And you write in the book, quote, while Mormons are told to have disdain for creeds, what they certainly do not realize is how many aspects of the Nicene Nicene Creed are found in Doctrine and Covenants 20. Yep. <laughs> if, if creeds teach false doctrine, as LDS leaders have said, then how can this be explained? Can, can you just set up that issue for us, Doctrine and Covenants 20, Nicene Creed, and why that shouldn't work for the Mormon? Well, I mean, if God supposedly gave that information to Joseph Smith, then you would think that it's going to be accurate to what is true. I, I think a lot of Latter-day Saints, Jeremy, uh, misunderstand where the Trinity comes from. Uh, I mean, it, it, it comes from, it's actually, as James White puts it in his book, The Forgotten Trinity, it solves problems rather than creates 
problems because the church was calling Jesus God in the second century. He was called God. In fact, I was at Tel Megiddo, uh, uh, where Armageddon uh, is, and right down the street from that is a prison where about 20 years ago they found a mosaic, and it calls Jesus God in that. In the second century, we have Tertullian in the uh, third century who actually came up with the term Trinity. It wasn't something that came up at the Council of Nicaea. I always like to ask Latter-day Saints when they say, oh, it was the creeds. Oh, well, what creed are you referring to? When they come up rarely with the, the Nicene Creed or the Council of Nicaea, I say, well, do you, do you know anything about the purpose of what the Council of Nicaea was? Why did they have that? And they said, well, they, they were going to create the Trinity and they were going to determine which books are in the Bible. And I said, false to both of those, because yeah, right. it was created because there was a guy named Arius who was describing Jesus as created. And so you had, you know, um, Athanasius, Alexander, you had this you had this debate over to whether or not Jesus was God. But if he's God and the Father is God, you've got multiple gods. That goes against Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. So, so uh, they had to, uh, now the Trinity does not get formulated, so to speak, until 381, which would be the Council of Constantinople, uh, where they actually dealt with the Holy Ghost, but that wasn't the purpose of the, the Nicene Creed. So I, I know that's a long answer to what you asked, but uh, I, I think sometimes we just got to inform Latter-day Saints where such an idea even came from. It didn't come from a council. It came well before. Just real quick, because I'm curious, I don't know it off the top of my head. Doctrine and Covenants 20, what is it about, and why does it quote the Nicene Creed? Because I um, am just unfamiliar with that section of the yeah. old D&C there. And I'll just, uh, it was uh, from, I'm going to look at it real quick just to make sure I'm accurate on this, because I, I don't have it uh, memorized. But it came about in April of 1830, so the church is founded in April of 1830, and uh, and so what they're trying to do, what God is, is is saying here is, well, first off, they wanted to prove the Book of Mormon was true. It was published the same time, April of 1830. And um, and so they, they go through the doctrines of creation, the fall, atonement and baptism. They all affirm those things because they're they're trying to find their way. See, Joseph Smith, if you read, Jeremy, the Book of Mormon, it does not teach that God has always been. Uh, uh, that God was once a man and that he has a body of flesh right. and bones. You're not going to find that. In fact, it's written as if it were written by a confused Protestant. So yeah, Joseph Smith— There's strong Trinitarian language in the Book well, of Mormon. Sure, and sometimes it's almost modalistic, you know, that the yeah, Father right. is the Son. That kind of thing you'll find, but certainly not the idea that they're independent gods and mm -hmm. that you somehow can become a god. And so— a lot of that is I'm going to I'm going to give it to the early history. Joseph Smith is not a theologian. Let's just be honest. I, he he doesn't really attend church. Uh, he used to, but he, he's he's a novice when it comes to these things. And so he's trying to put this religion together. April 6th, they've got, the, you know, the six people there uh, and um, to form this organization. And so they're just going by the uh, they're trying to go by the basics of, okay, who is God? Who is Jesus? So very close to what Christianity is. But then if you go on further, you're going to see that being contradicted. You're going to see that a lot in the Doctrine and Covenants as time goes on, as they start to talk about things more, and then they come up with some of their unique teachings, especially in the 1840s. That's uh, founded in 1830, but it, you know, it took a while for them to formulate their, their belief system.
That's really good. That's the, uh, the the concept of that. I mean, I guess I could get off on a rabbit trail on some of the things that maybe I shouldn't do that. But uh, um, I want to talk a little bit about justification for a minute or have yeah. you talk about justification. Obviously, that is a major issue, cornerstone issue for us as evangelicals. Uh, and and as we're engaging with Mormons, it really is an important issue. I remember back when I was first engaging with Mormons back in 2010, that was kind of my introduction to Mormonism, and hearing a lot of the same words, like you've referenced this concept, where there's a lot of the same words that are used, but the definitions are different. As we consider the concept of justification, we would say that they would affirm a works righteousness, whereas we believe in salvation by grace through faith. Could you give an overview of the problem that exists and maybe give our listeners insight on how we can more effectively engage and address the issue of justification with LDS? Oh, you can ask a Latter-day Saint, what do you believe about salvation? Throw that out as a general term and let them tell you what it is they believe. You have to understand, though, again, you're going to have to understand that Mormonism teaches in two types of salvation. So when they say salvation, are they talking about general salvation where all people are saved by grace, that the atonement of Christ covers all? They believe in universalism, so to speak. Everybody gets to go to one of three kingdoms of glory. Even Adolf Hitler has had his work done for him in a, out of all places, a London temple back in the 1980s. And so he's been sealed to his family and he's had his baptism for the dead taken uh uh, has been done by vicariously. So everybody gets that. But when, so, so if you, what you just said, a Latter-day Saint listening is going to say, oh, well, you, you got, you don't understand. We believe in salvation by grace through faith. Of course we do. Okay. So what exactly does that mean? Salvation by grace? Cause you can quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you know, we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. You cite that to a Latter-day Saint, and I think those are two good verses to memorize. And what are they going to do immediately? They're going to run over to James chapter 2, verse 20. Faith without works is dead. And so then I ask the question, but I thought you believed in salvation by grace, and now you're running me over to a place that, and, and before I get into James 2, 20, why did you take me there? When, when it says not by works here in, in chapter two, and they say, well, you, you're, you're making it sound like all you have to do is believe and you don't have to do anything. I said, I never said that. You didn't let me finish reading verse 10. For we are God's workmanship created by Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared for us in advance uh, before the foundation of the world, it says. Ephesians 1, 4 and 11 both teach that. So I have no problem uh, uh, you know, um, saying that justification by faith alone. That's what Romans chapter five says. Romans lays it out, a very good book for a Latter-day Saint to read to help him understand the setup that Paul is trying to do systematically. But works are also important. It's called sanctification. It says in Philippians 2.12 that we're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, not work for our salvation. Mormonism, true salvation is called exaltation or eternal life. As I mentioned earlier, and that is basically keeping God's commandments continually. And unless you do, where I am, you cannot go. That's Doctrine and Covenants, section 25, verse 15. So the Latter-day Saint knows that he needs to basically keep the commandments. You ask them how many, they'll say mm -hmm. all of them. You ask them how often do you have to keep the commandments, they'll normally rep reply all the time. Then I think you need to ask the question, can how are you doing at that? Hmm. And they look at you saying, well, I'm trying or I'm doing my best. I talk about the miracle of forgiveness. I use that book all the time in my evangelism. Uh, 
Spencer Kimball said, trying is not sufficient, nor is repentance complete when one merely tries to abandon sin. To try is weak, to do the best you can is not strong. You must always do better than you can. This is true in every walk of life. Latter-day Saints know mm. that if they were to die right now, they cannot claim, 1 John 5, 13, that they can know they have eternal life. They hope, they're trying, they're doing their best. And, and I like to say, well, what I have to offer you is you don't have to try or do your best. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe, sanctification, but justification, he paid it all. Mm. He imputed his righteousness into your account, not based on what you do or what you will do, but based on what he did. That's the difference in salvation Amen. between Mormonism and Christianity. As you just said, you have spent a lot of time interacting with former LDS president Spencer Kimball's book, Miracle of Forgiveness. I, in fact, have a, a copy of your doctored version of uh, Miracle of Forgiveness where you go through and you outline the key yeah. parts of that book. I, I purchased one of those from MRM. And in your latest book, you write, Throughout his book, Kimball used the unique LDS scriptures to show how a person can be cleansed of sin through obedience. In the second chapter, titled, No Unclean Thing Can Enter, he cited 1 Nephi 15.34, and that says, The kingdom of God is not filthy, and there cannot any unclean thing enter into the kingdom of God. And he cited that as proof that all people are culpable unless they have been able to cleanse themselves. So can you give us a little more background on who Spencer Kimball was and what kind of impact this teaching has on people? Oh, Spencer Kimball was the 12th president of the church. He wrote this book in 1969 as uh, an apostle, and then a few years later he becomes a president. Uh, this book is on display under his church portrait at the Church History Museum across the street from uh, the Temple Square. Uh, it has been uh, recommended several times from General Conference pulpits as a book every Latter-day Saint ought to read. In 1998, I think it was, they put together a leather edition of the book that they gave away to all of the uh, employees of the LDS Church. It's no longer in print since 2015, but I like to go out and hand these books out at uh, gatherings like like uh, general conferences or BYU football games because I have found a lot of people have heard about the book, but they haven't had a chance to read it. I want them to read it because not that I agree with Spencer Kimball. I disagree with him vehemently throughout his book. However, he wrote as an apostle as something that God has given him, and he cites the standard works to support his case. He's, he, I mean, he does a really good job of explaining what LDS Scripture says. So when we come to Doctrine and Covenants section 1, uh, for I, the Lord, cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. Nevertheless, he that repents and does the commandments of the Lord shall be forgiven. He cites that accurately. He cites D&C 5843. Uh, he cites, I mean, you, I, I use all these verses, and people say, you don't believe in that. I say, no, I don't believe in it, but you do. <laughs> and if you believe in these verses, you need to explain to me what, where is he wrong on that? Because I've had people very angry. They don't like his book because he said some things bad about homosexuality. And so a lot of progressive type Mormons don't want anything to do with the book. I've had them yell at me for, why are you handing out that book? Well, it's a, it's one of your own leaders. Well, I know, but that's a terrible book. Oh, was, was uh, Spencer Kimball a, a prophet? Well, yes, he was. Well, then he must have been a false prophet. And they look at me and say, well, no, he wasn't. I said, then why was he teaching false doctrine, according to you? You know, I mean, they can't win on that. 
So I like to use that uh, book, and, and it, it, it's, uh, I have a website called themiracleofforgiveness.com. If somebody wants to learn more, they can go there, and I can explain. And I even show you the pages I highlight. There's a PDF there that you can look at. Now, those who embrace his teaching on how to be forgiven, to obey and cleanse yourself, what impact does that have on their lives as they try to follow that? Well, it's impossible. We That's why we call this the impossible gospel. No, no Latter-day Saint can can save themselves. They know that. They, they know that um, uh, they're going to need the grace of God, but then they're going to have to do everything. And so there's this, you know, but, but there's this understanding that I can't do it in this life, which contradicts the Book of Mormon. Alma chapter 34 says, if you don't do it in this lifetime, the devil doth seal you his and you are in his power forever. Uh, and when you quote that, I, again, I don't believe in Alma 34 because I don't believe the Book of Mormon, but the Mormon's supposed to believe that. What do you do with a passage like that? And this uh, whole book, there's not one place where it's possible to actually save somebody who's already deceased. Hebrews 9.27, 2 Corinthians 6.2 are verses we can use that um, after death comes the uh, judgment, and uh, today is a day of salvation. So so we as Christians believe, yes, this, this is something that happens in this life, and if it doesn't, there's only one of two places. There's either heaven or hell. There's not this nice three-tiered uh, heaven, so to speak, where you're going to get to go. Just hearing all you pulling all these pieces together, it just sounds, quite honestly, soul-crushing. I don't have another word for it other I than agree. that. It just sounds soul-crushing. I agree. Now, yeah, connecting. I, yeah, oh, I, I would. I would just say, I and I don't hate Latter Day Saints. A lot of people think that maybe because I've spent my life, I've dedicated my life to doing this here since 2010 full time, and I've been doing it for 40 years. I mean, I, since the 1980s, I have been witnessing to Mormons, and, and and so if we understand that we have truth as Christians and we hold it to ourselves. Shame on us. We need to be able to explain to a Latter-day Saint why we disagree, but to do it in a gentle and respectful manner as it tells us to do in First Peter 3.16. Ephesians chapter 4 says, speak the truth in love. And so, yes, it should be. I'm glad, I'm glad you made that point, Ken. It should be soul-crushing to anybody hearing me who calls himself a Christian and has LDS friends and you've never told them about why you might disagree. I think it's time to have you do that, that you're going to have to find a way. I'm not saying to force it on the conversation, but sometimes things come up and, and explain, well, I disagree with that. Explain why, especially if you live in a Mormon community like we do in uh, Utah. One of the one of the doctrines that is really, I think, many evangelicals hold it dear, or at least they should, uh, is the the doctrine of adoption through faith in Jesus Christ, adopted being adopted as uh, being you know brought brought into the family of God. We were talking before about the concept of how we become literal offspring, or we are literal offspring of God because of heavenly Father, heavenly Mother. Does that mean that Mormons reject the concept of God's adoption of us when we come to Him in faith? Yeah, well, that's a great that's a great point you're making, Ken. Because yeah, you are a little child of God, and they 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 have songs in their primary books talking about I am a child of God, and yet we reject that because it says in John one that you become a child of God through faith. First John also uh, has passages talking about that. I think it's chapter three or is it four? Uh, I mean, I mean. Uh, uh, I think that I've never brought that up to uh, Latter-day Saint Ken, so I don't know how the average answer is going to be, but 
I think that's a great strategy to say here, you know, we got the idea you can read Romans, for instance, you know, that we're adopted in, into this and, and uh, the Gentiles, because he's talking Jews and Gentiles. Jews were natural, but the Gentiles were, 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 were a splinter, you know, that had to be grafted in. And uh, so you give me something to think about. That might be a fun topic to talk about with the Latter-day Saints sometime. Speaking of Jews and Gentiles, when a Latter-day Saint, well, what do Latter-day Saints believe about being becoming Jews? I mean, at their at their uh, patriarchal blessing, they're told whether they're Ephraim or Manasseh. But didn't Brigham Young teach something about like the blood, something with the blood with uh, your DNA becomes that of a Jew or something like that? Yeah, yeah. He said something of that nature. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I've talked to Jewish friends. I was I was on the airplane in, in February. I was flying over to Israel and I sat next to an Orthodox Jew, a younger guy from Canada who had lived in Israel for three years. So I talked a little bit about what I do with Mormons and I, he didn't know much about Mormons. So I explained a lot of that. And I said, I said, what do you think of this? That uh, Latter-day Saint, as Gentile as they might be, if they become a believer that all of a sudden they become Jewish and they have what are called patriarchal blessings and, and they're told which tribe they come from. He looked at me and he didn't understand. I mean, he spoke good English and everything, but he said, what do you mean they become Jewish? I said, well, they believe they literally are from a tribe of Israel. And most, you mentioned Ephraim and Manasseh. I've actually met people who call themselves Levite. They come from wow. Levi. So occasionally you'll get one of those. And I, this one guy that I met who called himself from the tribe of Levi, I said, oh, so then you have the right to be called a priest. You know, the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood, I guess that would fit with you versus anybody else because you're not supposed to have, be an Aaronic priest, which is 11-year-old or older as a boy that they can actually become. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this idea of, of this heritage, they're told at a, at a patriarchal blessing by a man who through this, I mean, he has a connection with God to be able to write on a piece of paper, this is who you are. And then they put on promises. If you keep the faith, then you will be successful and they'll write all these things out. A lot of uh, former Latter-day Saints have pulled out their patriarchal blessings because it's written out in a piece of paper. And and they're amazed at either how wrong it was or sometimes, whoa, you know, this is actually quite close to what I had. But it's no consistency because, I mean, you're just real generic with what you would say in the generally with a uh, patriarchal blessing. Well, there's so much more we could talk about. I mean, you just mentioned the the priesthood and how their deacons, uh, little boys at 11 years old, get the Aaronic priesthood, and now later they have high priesthood holders who get the Melchizedek priesthood, their baptism at eight years old and baptism for the dead and all the temple works and how they do communion with water instead of juice or wine and how they wear special undergarments. I mean, there's just there's just no end to the things we could talk about. But uh, we'll choose to end this interview by uh, the way you end the book. The last two chapters of the book you've devoted to the topics of sanctification and growing in the faith. It is remarkably common, as you mentioned just in a few uh, minutes ago, to hear Latter-day Saints say that if we believe in justification by faith, that we're essentially giving people permission to make mental acknowledgement about information regarding God, but they can go about sinning however they'd like for the rest of their lives. And they often quote that James 2 verse, faith without works is dead. How do you generally go about responding to that all too common argument or even perceiving it as you can, you know, you've interacted with so many and you know what's coming here. They're going to, they're going to want to push back on faith, what faith really is by going to James 2. How, how do you generally handle that? 
Oh, James too. Uh, basically, is being written to people who are um, uh, that are different from what Paul was doing in Ephesians too. So you got to understand the two different audiences. In uh, in uh, Ephesians, in the Ephesians chapter, chapter two, he's basically talking to people who think somehow their good works are going to earn them God's favor, and he says, "No, it's based on your faith. It's not based on your works." That's what he's trying to say. Yes, you were created to do good works. Whereas James is talking to people who say, well, I have faith. I guess I don't need works or vice versa. And James is saying, no, if you have faith, then good works will be a result of who you are. You become a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. I mean, we have what's called baptism of the spirit. We have the filling of the spirit and we have the fruit of the spirit. And Paul says, uh, in Ephesians or in Galatians chapter five, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. And he lists a whole bunch of things that are, we could today say, yeah, those are obvious. Whereas the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, these are things that come out of you as a result. I just read today uh, the passage in Luke where Jesus uh, talks about um, the seed that's, you know, spread out and the seed that lands, you know, on the, uh, on the, on the, I think it's on the uh, rocks on the uh, path. They grow up quickly, but they, they wither away because they weren't planted in the good soil. So I'm going to say what I tell Latter-day Saints is you need to read your Bible. You need to understand what the Bible is talking about. Yes, we're supposed to be moral people. We're supposed to be a good people as a result of who we are. But Christianity is not about what we do. As all the religions say, including Mormonism, it's always based on what you do. Christianity is based on who you are. If you become a child of God, then the good works are, go you're going to be landed in the good soil and you're going to produce crop 30, 60, 90 times greater. Very good. Well, Eric, we thank you so much for joining us today. And I, I really do hope that, you know, if there is, there's any LDS listening to this, that you'll consider these things very carefully, and you'll consider what the distinctions are between uh, Mormonism, LDS faith, and biblical Christianity, and uh, that you'll seek out the true uh, Christ uh, that we find in the pages of Scripture. Ken, uh, Ken if anybody yes. is a Latter-day Saint watching your, uh, watching this, and they're skeptical, and they uh, show me, uh, have them write me at my email, eric, E-R-I-C, at mrm.org. And if they're a Latter-day Saint, or are they somebody who just left in the last year, I will send you a free copy of Introducing Christianity to Mormons. I'd love to have you read it. Give me your feedback at the end. So if that's you and you disagree with a lot of what I'm saying, let me uh, explain it more to you in the book. And then maybe that could be a conversation we have down the road. Tremendous. Well, thank you for that. And I encourage all of our listeners, uh, check out MRM, Mormonism Research Ministry, mrm.org for more resources and things that are available there. And yeah, Eric, we do just thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Ken and Jeremy.